Hello. Welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Please excuse my uh, raspy voice today. I've uh, got something going on. I don't know what it is, but uh, we're going to barrel through this anyways, uh, because I'm very excited, very, very excited about this new episode. It's uh, one I've been looking forward to since the podcast was just a mere rumble here at American Libraries. Because it's October, fall is, it's here, it's upon us. There's a little bit of a nip in the air, it's cold, the days are getting shorter, and the darkness grows around us. And in that darkness, there's this otherworldliness, a slight creep, a spookiness. It's Halloween. Yes, Halloween. It's my favorite time of the year. And it may be yours, too. It's a time when ghost stories are traded, horror films are watched en masse, and we're all kind of given this carte blanche to embrace that spooky side of us, the spooky side of life. And that's what we're going to do in this very special episode. Today on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we have three incredible guests. First up, we have Greg Hager. He's the director of the Willard Library in Evansville, Indiana which is notorious for being one of the most haunted libraries in the United States. Greg and I talk about the library's history, its haunts, and how the library has used the internet to help visitors spot its ghosts. Next up, we talk to Jake Adler. He's the head librarian at the Conjuring Arts Research Center in New York City, a really fascinating library and research facility devoted entirely to the magic arts. And finally, I sit down with author and filmmaker Daniel Krauss, we discuss the death and life of Zebulon Finch, Volume 2, his latest book, which actually just came out October 25th. Uh, we discuss Troll Hunters. That's the book he co-authored with filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. You know him for Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone and Pacific Rim and tons of other great films. Uh, that's coming to Netflix in uh, December as an animated series. Uh, we discuss our love of zombie films and horror films in general and much, much more. It's a great talk with Daniel. But first, a word from a sponsor. Are you often in the dark when it comes to reader's advisory for horror fans? Well, ALA Editions can help. ALA Editions has three books that will help you guide your horror, thriller, and mystery-loving patrons in the right direction. Fantastic Fiction, 21st Century Paranormal Reads by Patricia O'Brien Matthews is an engaging tour of today's spooky literature with more than 200 annotated entries all rated on a scale of 1 to 5 for levels of violence, sexuality, and humor. In Mind-Bending Mysteries and Thrillers for Teens, a Programming and Reader's Advisory Guide, author Amy J. Alessio offers a complete guide to getting young adults hooked on mysteries. It has lists that hit every subgenre from the cozies and romantic mysteries to suspense thrillers, police procedurals, and beyond. And finally, the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror 2nd Edition by Becky Siegel Spratford details the latest books on monsters and the macabre. From vampires, zombies, and witches to ghosts, haunted houses, demons, and uh, comic horror as well. It also dives into the history of horror itself, its appeal through the ages, and much more. You can find these three terrifying tomes, and much, much more, at the ALA Store. That's at alastore.ala.org. Willard Library in Evansville, Indiana is the oldest public library in the state. It's a large Victorian building and has a look that's both stately, refined, and kind of creepy in this Adams Family sort of way. And it suits Willard Library perfectly, as it's reported to be incredibly haunted by multiple entities. The library's most famous ghost, the Grey Lady, has been seen by library staff and visitors since the 1930s. I spoke with Greg Hager, the director of the library, via phone recently to discuss the hauntings and how the library has capitalized on its supernatural notoriety. Most notably, a collection of webcams that's placed throughout the library that enable the public to take part in the ghost hunting online. And uh, kind of extends beyond that as well. As you'll hear, our conversation may or may not have had uh, some extra otherworldly participants. You see, um, oftentimes recordings done at the Willard Library, audio, video, have a uh, tendency to mysteriously disappear, become erased. Seems like someone doesn't want word to get out. And um, oftentimes throughout our talk, Greg and I had some trouble hearing each other. 
audio dropouts. Um, luckily, we were able to get it all, but who knows? Maybe there was someone else listening in. Hello, Greg. Yeah, hey, Phil. Hi, sorry about that. Um, my phone went crazy and for some reason wouldn't accept the uh, Google Voice uh, prompt uh, when you first called. It's probably the gray lady. Yeah, actually, you know, I, I was thinking that because I read some of the um, the stories about how what was it a, a news newscaster or tried to some of the, the tapes didn't show up or didn't yeah, come out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it, that happens all the time. Yeah, it's that I was thinking that exact same thing just like minutes ago, right before you called. That it would be you know kind of some sort of sweet justice on her end if, if none of this got recorded. Um, <laughs> let's, anyways, that doesn't happen. let's let's start with the um, the library itself. It's the oldest public library in Indiana, right? The oldest public library building in the state of Indiana. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's, it's built in 1885, but I guess the um, the hauntings, the the spiritual happenings in the library didn't start until 1937. Um, can you can you talk a bit about that first? Like, when did it happen and why? And I guess was that the first sighting of the gray, the, the, the famous gray lady? Yeah, it, uh, it happened in 1937, early February of 1937, and uh, it happened to the then Willard Library custodian, and it was his practice to come in very early, uh, for like three o'clock in the morning, to stoke the coal-fired furnace and get ready, you know, get the, the building temperature up for the day. And as he was doing that, he was entering the basement, he was using a flashlight, and uh, approached the furnace and, and saw a figure standing in front of it. And he would be the person, first person to describe this figure as uh, being a female. And, um, and he stated that she was a long dress and Victorian-style lady shoes and seemed to have some kind of a veil of gauzy material over her face. Uh, and he could see through her, you can see, stated that she was a long dress and Victorian-style lady shoes, and seemed to have some kind of a veil of gauzy material over her face. Uh, and he could see through her, you can see that his flashlight was, was being with drink, and, uh, and is the only employee to leave the employment of Willard Library and cite as his reason for doing so, always seeing the ghost and not having anybody believe. Now, interestingly, something that was happening in, in 1937, in early February, was the entire Ohio and Mississippi River valleys were flooded. Massive flood. Hmm. called it a thousand-year flood. And many parts of Evansville, Indiana, were uh, under flood water. Willard was not, but, you know... So there were some kind of large events happening, whether it's related to the ghost or not, I have no idea. Now, there's some, some speculation as to who um, she might be. Um, some people think that it's, it's, it could be Willard, Willard Carpenter, the, uh, the, who founded the library, it could be his daughter. Um, are, are there any other theories um, that, that, you, that you're aware of? Yes, I mean, oh, there, are, there are tons of theories. And, you know, sometimes we have to say, okay, look, folks, nobody ever died at Willard Library. <laughs> no, nobody was ever killed here. Um, you know, we don't have – there is not an attic. We do not keep Ouija boards in the attic. You know, just those kind of outlandish things. But we have – we do have paranormal investigators who who come on an annual basis, and we try to mix them up and not have the same people, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all seem to agree that there is some kind of a haunting happening and some have even speculated that we have up to eight different entities haunting Willard Library. Oh, wow. So, I mean, the popular theory is it's at least one of the ghosts is Louise Carpenter because she kind of held a grudge against the library. Uh, when her father passed away, he left the bulk of his fortune to support Willard Library. And she didn't feel like she got her fair share and actually sued the library. Uh, you know, so turn of the century... Victorian courtroom drama, and she lost. Hmm. Um, so some people say because of of that uh, bitterness that she is she is the haunt. She's the the lady haunting the library. 
Yeah, but d- despite that that bitterness in life, she is not a malevolent ghost, though, is she? Her her manifestation manifestations are they're pretty benign, right? They're very benign. We've never had any kind of uh, you know occasion where um, anything bad happened to somebody that that encountered the ghost. Um, I mean, and, and mostly she she's not even seen. She's sensed in other ways. Um, and yeah, I'd say at most she would be a prankster. <laughs> but apparently, when when she is seen, uh, people report smelling a, a very strong, very cheap smelling perfume uh, accompanying the ghost. Uh, a lot of electrical issues, uh, a lot of plumbing issues. Um, women reporting having their hair fondled when there's nobody nearby, or their earrings touched. Uh, or just feeling like there's somebody else with you on the stairway. And we can all, you know, everybody that works at Willard Library can tell you about strange energy days and hearing strange noises or having strange occurrences. Um, and, you know, some of us who work here can tell you about actually seeing the ghost. I am not one of those people. Um, are there certain places in the library where she's she's um, primarily seen? Um, yeah, uh, a lot in the basement, uh, and which includes our children's department. That's probably the the area of heaviest concentration, but she's been seen on the second floor in the genealogy and local history department. That's actually where um, the first ghost cam was installed for people to look for the ghost. Um, There are few reports in the adult services department, but people have reported having strange sensations, so maybe not sightings, but just having strange occurrences happening in the adult services department on the library's first floor. And we did open a new addition last year, and there have already been reports of uh, ghostly happenings in the new addition. So it's everywhere. Oh, wow. Now, you'd mentioned there's up to eight entities, and and um, um, for our listeners out there, um, you, you've installed webcams. How many webcams do you have around the library. There are six webcams. Uh, we began with one, and we did it on a whim. It was like, okay, let's let's do this a couple weeks before Halloween. Uh, we did it in conjunction with our local newspaper, the Evansville Courier and Press, and we didn't understand the kind of popularity it would receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Associated Press picked up the story. It was in every newspaper in the United States. It seemed like, uh, just, you know, we hit CNN. Uh, and it was it was kind of crazy, and it was early in the days of the internet, really. Um, and apparently, on Halloween night, there were so many people trying to get to the can that it crashed all of the service internet service into and out of Evansville. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I mean the the, the webcam and the webcams are just they're fun. And yeah. so we've you know we've grown from one to now six, and we try to put them we try to put the cams in areas where there have been a lot of occurrences, mm-hmm. and and that way, you know people feel like they might actually get to see something. And thousands of people feel like they have seen the ghost on these webcams. And and the webcams have also they picked up some of these other entities. I know you 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 feature some of the images that uh, that viewers have have captured on your website. And there's some uh, like shadowy figures and some other um, very creepy looking things. Um, what um, is the history of, of these other entities? I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, we've had reports of of small children, uh, reports of an older man. Um, and then, like you said, the strange, you know, beings. You know, some some people have suggested they they could be like ghosts of animals. I, but you know, there are a whole bunch of theories out there, and I, you know, uh, as I said, I'm I'm a skeptic. And when I, if I were to see something, I would tend to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't personally seen any kind of a, a ghost, but I'm willing to keep an open mind about it. Yeah. Now, now, since I mean, the library, you, you obviously you've embraced the Gray Lady and your um, your notoriety of being a haunted library. When did that happen? Was that kind of immediate? Did um, um, because you you had your great 
section of your website devoted to the hauntings and the Great Lady and the history. You have these wonderful audio files that people can listen to to see if they can hear anything. When did the the, the total embrace of of your haunted status begin? I would say it it became it became local lore first. So you know, starting with 1937, people started first hearing about this ghost. And then people kind of, you know, oh, that's kind of quaint, and you know, they kind of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all that serious. And I think as more people had encounters with a ghost at Willard Library, the more the word of mouth works great in Evansville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So the more people, the more people heard about it, um, you know, the more it became part of the fabric of the library. And it helps that Willard Library looks like because it is a Victorian library. I mean, we look like a great haunted place. Indeed, Uh, indeed. So I think that that helps. But I would say in 1995, we began our first ghost tour. And, again, that was kind of done as kind of an add-on, if you will. Hey, you know, I said to the adult services librarian, hey, what if we did a ghost tour? And we just took people around the building and talked about where the ghost has been seen. And we were planning on doing one tour. I thought maybe maybe 30 people would show up. 800 people showed up that night. Oh, wow. We couldn't put them all in the library. We were only a 15,000-square-foot building. So we had to bring groups in and give them a tour and make sure they all left because we, we didn't want to be over building capacity. It was a crazy night. So... I would say in 1995 we realized this is marketing gold. If you know, if nothing else, people just really enjoy the stories. Mm-hmm. They enjoy the experience. They enjoy the history, and that's what we should be doing anyway as librarians. I mean, we, we're fun places to be. And um, we've added over the years. Then obviously we do more than one ghost tour now. <laughs> Um, this year we will do 27 different ghost tours. Oh wow! So I would say it began in 1995, um, and then shortly after that, we were the site of uh, a Discovery Channel episode called "The Real Ghost Hunters," and there was a a, a local ghost hunter named Tim Hart, and he had developed a computer system that measured electromagnetic fluctuation. And this production company brought him to Willard Library, and he kind of conducted a paranormal investigation using this equipment. And I, I refer to Tim as the, the father of the cable paranormal television show. Mm-hmm. Almost every network and cable channel has some kind of a paranormal show. But there was only one in 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 the uh, late nineties, and uh he was the first so oh. that's you know that kind of that kind of put us on the map a little bit in that regard as well yeah and and what did, what did he what were the the findings of that particular visit from him well and, and Tim is actually the researcher the paranormal investigator that has been here the most i mean he's probably been here twenty five times I'll hmm. say and conducted different investigations. So he has a real body of work, but he can definitely point to, and I've seen this, he can point to areas within Willard Library that have crazy high occurrences of electromagnetic fluctuation. Wow. And to paranormal investigators, they say that points to a haunting. This is an entity, you know. At the same time, electromagnetic fields exist in nature, mm-hmm. and maybe we just happen to have several of them here. And and maybe some people are very, very sensitive to feeling that change. So theories abound. Hello, are you there? I'm here. Okay. Yeah, the, the the phone's cutting out, so hopefully that's not <laughs> the uh, the great lady making her presence known again here in our podcast. Um, yeah. Now, on, on top of your the tours that you do, are these tours held um, throughout the year, or are they primarily around the Halloween season? 
we try to keep ghost tours happening um, the last three weekends in October. Okay. Um, because that keeps them special. Yeah. Now, do you do you, during the course of the year have you seen an increase in visitors because of the hauntings? Sure. It's very interesting. You can sometimes you can tell when out of town visitors come to Willard Library, and and that they're actually looking for the ghost. Mm-hmm. It's, they they you know just in the way that they approach the building and are looking and and yes we've seen we've definitely seen an uptick in people from out of the area coming to Willard Library specifically to look for the ghost throughout the year, not just, you know, during October. I will say that so far this year, ghost tours have been very, very popular. We are, we've we've already done uh, a Thursday through Saturday set of tours, and those, the tour attendance is up right now about 46%, a little over 12%. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they're being well-received. By the by, the time October is over, we've done on an annual basis about 35 uh, programs related to Halloween for both children and adults. Oh, excellent! Well, if any of our listeners are are, are, are curious and want to learn more, please go to the World Library's website. There's um, you can find all the events, but also this, like as I mentioned, an incredible section devoted to the Gray Lady and the hauntings. You can see the uh, the live webcam, and if you see anything yourself, you can upload the photo there and um, become a part of the history yourself. Um, Greg, thanks so much for talking with us today for Dewey Decibel, and um, if I'm ever in Evansville, I will come visit you, absolutely. (laughs) Please do, Phil. Thank you for having me, and I would love to give you a tour of this place. Thanks once again to Greg Hager from World Library for talking ghosts with Dewey Decibel. Um, You must check out the library's website if you can. Check out all the webcams, the ghost images people submitted, the recordings, and much more. It's uh, really quite spooky and creepy in the best way possible. You can find it all at willardghost.com. Winter is coming, and we all know what that means. It's time to cozy into your favorite warm place. Maybe grab some coffee or tea, throw on a blanket, and really settle into a good book. And if you're like me, you have tons of books to choose from. They're probably piled up everywhere. You have lists made nonstop. But if you're looking to add even more books to that growing list of yours, you'll get some excellent suggestions from the short list for the ALA's Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction. The Andrew Carnegie Medals are the only book awards selected by librarians and independent booksellers, readers' advisory experts who work closely with adult readers. The awards are made possible by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and are co-sponsored by Booklist and the Reference User Services Association, a division of the American Library Association. You can view the new shortlist, previous winners, and more at ala.org slash Carnegie Adult. One of my favorite podcasts is the Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Jim Harold. Each episode, Jim tackles a topic straight from the X-Files, hauntings, UFO phenomenon, psychics, cryptozoology, conspiracy theories, the whole shebang. It's really fascinating listening. On a recent episode, Jim spoke with author David Jayher about his book, The Witch of Lime Street. And the book recounts the rivalry between early 20th century psychic and spiritualist Marjorie and Harry Houdini. Their conversation was, it was intense, it was fascinating, and it really sparked my interest further in the history of magic. So naturally, I turned to the Conjuring Arts Research Center in New York City. The Conjuring Arts Research Center is a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of magic and its allied arts. Psychic phenomenon, hypnosis, deceptive gambling, the science and history of playing cards, mentalism, ventriloquism, juggling, and sleight of hand techniques. It's in Manhattan, and it primarily functions as a research library, with more than 11,000 book and magazine titles, some of them dating back to the 15th century. It's really a valuable resource for performers, historians, collectors, and anyone really interested in magic. To learn more about the Research Center, what it does, who uses it, and how you can access the collection, I gave a call to Jake Adler, their new head librarian. Jake, can you tell us a little bit about the Conjuring Arts Center? Uh, when did it open? I guess, like, why? Why? How did this place come into being? Um, the reason that it opened is that uh, 
uh, I've heard the story before, but I don't. I want to make sure I don't get any details wrong. But it uh, started out as a private collection, and um, back at early 2000s, 2001 to 2003, and uh, it eventually got so large that it just sort of needed a space to house it all. And then it was uh, it, uh, it, we had there was an office space that got converted into the library facility, and then the collection was housed there. And it's uh, been growing ever since. It's been in operation about 13 years now. I think when people think of like a conjuring art center, like a, a magic, a collection devoted to magic, I think that there's like two ways of thinking about that. I think people can think maybe it's just like a, a cult based type of collection or it's a more entertainment mm-hmm. type of, 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 of volumes for, for working magicians. Uh, what's, what's, does it fall into both of those? Where, which avenue does the collection go down? I w- uh, it's definitely more so, much more so the latter than the former. Um, mm-hmm. We do have uh, a few things here and there about occultism and things like that, but primarily uh, the collection is set up with performing magicians in mind, and um, and so and more about stage magic and illusion and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, there there are other people here that could go into more detail about sort of the purpose of the collection and what it's there for. But my um, my job is mostly just to sort of make sure that it's uh, it's all accessible and it's all um, well accessible to to researchers. That is, uh, because we're a closed sack. We're not open to the public. We don't we don't just let anybody come in here uh, to use the collection. It's there 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 has to be sort of a a certain uh, use out of it that gets done. There's a, pra- a sort of practicality to it, I should say. Mm-hmm. Now, how if a, a, a general, a person off the street, a lay person wanted to access collection, can they access the collection, or is this a, a membership only based system? Um, it's not membership only. There are members that we have, uh, and what the members get is they get a, a certain level of access to our online searchable database, Ask Alexander, where we've uh, scanned uh, quite a large number of items in the collection, and then they can, and then there's various uh, there's various membership levels, and then you and you can also sign up for a monthly subscription to that if you just want that. Uh, members also receive uh, a subscription to our biannual publications, Bissier. Uh so they get that as well. But but for people that are coming into the library, you don't need to be a member. All you need to do is to um, set up a research appointment. Uh, you would need to write up a, a, a sort of little. Uh, kind of project goal and synopsis about what you're looking to use the material with, and they don't have to be magicians. In fact, I would say it's sort of it's almost like an even split. I would say half and half between um, actual magicians or magic researchers coming in, and people coming in for for a number of really disparate um, needs. You'd be surprised the the sort of things that people consult this library for. A, a while back, for example. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was this uh, this artist, this this sort of uh, French artist who uh, I think she mainly works in photography, and she was consulting uh, the library for this art project that she's doing. So, so there's and and you know and then there's people that do things that you would more think of like um, researching uh, old uh, publications and books on 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 magic tricks and sort of uh, instructional sheets and apparatuses and things like that. Um, There are people that do research on magic history, either because they have some sort of personal connection to it or are part of some sort of uh, larger project or things like that. So so there's a lot of different uses that people get out of here. And uh, and as as long as you, you have a fairly good idea of what you're looking for, because um, researchers can look through the catalog and see, oh, you know, uh, the, this work looks interesting. I'd like to do research on that. And then uh, we we set it up and they come in and they conduct their research. How many, we can talk kind of broadly about the collection itself, how many volumes are actually in the collection? You said that it's been growing exponentially from the small space to where you are now. How many volumes are in the collection right now? Um, I can't say the exact number for sure. I, I can say it's in the order. It's I think it's in the order of like tens of thousands at this point. So okay. And um, how many librarians besides yourself? How many librarians are at the, the Conjuring Arts Research Center? Um, well, 
I'm the, uh, well, there's myself. I'm the head librarian. We have uh, one other library staff member who mostly works in uh, digitizing and scanning our assets. Uh, there's one other librarian personnel, but uh, she does not come in. She works full-time as a translator, uh, translating works into English for for the collection, but she's not on site uh, as, as far as I'm aware. You, you're fairly new to the center, uh, right? You've only been there a few mm -hmm. months. How did you end at the Conjuring Arts Research Center? I guess that's um, – um, what's, what's your background? Well, that's kind of a funny story. It's, it's, I think it's almost three months now I've been here full-time. Uh, I started as a cataloger at uh, this uh, place. I don't, I don't know if you know it, the, this place, the Paley Center for Media. They're kind of a, a combination television museum and library and uh and what the and uh mostly it's mostly television there's also some radio there's like um this they've started to add things from internet based media and things like that and and it, it's kind of an interesting organization it was it was founded by william s paley the first president of cbs and i went there straight out of undergraduate school as a cataloger and uh, my job there was i was uh, viewing all these assets that they had in their digitized collection. They had this massive digitization project since the 90s that they started. And so I would have to input uh, metadata and all kinds of broadcast data for it. I was there for quite a while. I was there for six years. Um, and about halfway into that, about two, three years into it, I started looking into uh, sort of w what I could sort of do with my cataloging experience. Because it wasn't it, it wasn't really what I set out to do. I it, I sort of just fell into it a little bit. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was an English major, and I uh, had I had some notion that I wanted to be a writer of some sort, but I wasn't I wasn't too clear on that. But then I started doing this cataloging work, and I wanted to see if I could expand that professionally. And, and so um, in 2013, I went into I went into my master's program, library school program. I went to the Palmer School for Library and Information Science uh, at Long Island University. And while I was there, this would have been last year, 2015, I had an assignment for my rare books and special collections class where I had to uh, visit some sort of special collection and do sort of a little profile on it. And I don't remember exactly how, but I stumbled across the Conjuring Arts place. It was, um, it was, I think it was on some sort of list of special collections libraries or something like that. But I stumbled across it and I got in touch with the, the then head librarian, my predecessor. And, uh, she showed me around. She was very accommodating. And I was, I was, I, I remember being struck by the place. I was kind of fascinated by it. It was, it was just, uh, just it all seemed very interesting to me. It's, it's, it's a lot when you first walk in it's it's it, there's a it, it does have a certain effect on you once you sort of see all the the not not just the books but there's also a few apparatuses that we have a couple display cases uh and it, it's it's very interesting um so that happened and then i didn't really think about the place for a while but then i graduated from library school uh january this this past january and I spent a few months looking for jobs, and I didn't really find anything I wanted too much. But then in, I guess this would have been July, maybe late June, early July, uh, I noticed that there was a, a listing for the head librarian position here. And it was the, the I was going to be replacing uh, the woman who showed me around. She, she was leaving for another job, and, uh, and I got an interview, and it was... Uh, and then it, it led to me being here. Now, um, in that short amount of time, like you said it's you know it's it's a lot to take in. What has been? <laughs> has there been any type of any type of interesting experience at the library thus far? Because I'm sure, I mean, you're dealing with with magic books, you're dealing with magicians, and people dealing are um, accessing a lot of you know very specific. Um, I hate to use the word unusual, but unusual type of, of, of topics. Mm -hmm. um, has there been anything that stuck out in the past um, few months uh, that you'd like to share with us? Um, you know, I, I, I will say this, um, just as a little bit of a generalization. Um, I would say that because this is a this is kind of a 
a smaller, sort of more obscure institution. Uh, the people who who seek us out as as members and friends and sort of associates, it's all a very tight knit community. You know, it's it's there's a great sense of sort of community and camaraderie around here, both among the staff and above our and and sort of through our patrons. So it, it struck it struck me quite a bit. It's it, they're very they're they're all very accommodating, and it, it, they're very nice. You know, it, it's it's I don't think you know if you're working in a larger library, if you're working in say like one of the public library system or something like that, you don't uh, always I at least my impression is that you don't always have this sense of kind of very personal interaction with the the patrons that that utilize your resources it 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 feels more intimate i would say the 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 whole sort of organization is has more of an air of intimacy to it despite the fact that there are members of this place from literally all over the world so it's it's a, it's a strange juxtaposition thanks again to Jake Adler from the Conjuring Arts Research Center speaking with the Dewey Decimal Podcast. You can find the center online at conjuringarts.org. It feels like we were all just together, doesn't it? Soaking up the sun and often trying to escape the sweltering heat at the ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition in Orlando this past June. It feels like it was just yesterday, but it's time to start planning our next meeting. The next ALA Midwinter Meeting and Exhibits is heading to Atlanta in January, and as always, it promises to be an essential event. On top of all the programs, forums, networking events, and exhibit hall activities, joining us at Midwinter 2017 are W. Bell, he's a comedian and host of the United Shades of America on CNN, authors Susan Tan and Kwame Alexander, and also actor, director, all-around entertainer, Neil Patrick Harris, you're gonna love him, and many, many more. And I know it's early, you may not want to start thinking about 2017, but it's never too early to register for Midwinter. Registration is already open, so head to 2017.alamidwinter.org to get that process going. You won't regret it. We'll be seeing you in Atlanta. Award-winning author and filmmaker Daniel Krause is a busy man these days. His book, The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch, Volume 2, Empire Decayed, was just released by Simon & Schuster on October 25th. And Troll Hunters, the book he co-authored with filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone fame, probably familiar with those films, is coming to Netflix in December as an animated series. And he does all of this on top of his duties as editor of Books for Youth at Booklist here at the American Library Association. I sat down with Daniel recently to discuss his work and inspirations, horror writing, horror movies, zombies, and much, much more. All right, we're here with Daniel Krause. Daniel, thanks for joining us today here at Dewey Decibel. Of course. All right, um, you're very busy. You're extremely busy these days. Um, you have a bunch of projects either landing right now or coming up in the future. Um, let's start with Troll Hunters. It's your uh, project with uh, Guillermo del Toro. It started as a book, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a Netflix animated series coming out in December. Yeah, right. right. Now, how did this how did this start? How did you hook up with Guillermo del Toro? Right. So it's actually way more complicated than that. It actually started as a movie idea that Guillermo had. Um, you can Google this, but it, it goes kind of way back. It goes back many years, and uh, I don't know if it ever progressed further than an idea. But at some point that petered out or just sort of got stillborn as projects do. And uh, he was still contracted though to do a book. And what happened, my involvement sort of hinges around a book that I wrote called Rotters. And at some point, uh, Gamma read it and really liked it and uh, ended up blurbing it for the uh, paperback. Um, so I think it was sort of just me being at the right place at the right time i think i was just sort of fresh in his mind when it when he came up with the realization that maybe he needed a co-author for this project Mm -hmm. um so then the book was going to be regardless of whatever happened to the movie or the tv series of these other ideas he had for the project the book was always going to be its own thing like it wasn't going to be any kind of novelization or anything like that it was going to be a a novel i I wouldn't have been interested in in any other arrangement really so we just 
we just got together in Toronto. He was shooting Pacific Rim up there, and we just sort of talked it out. Um, he was kind of feeling me out, and I was sort of feeling him out, which is, sounds like you might just think I just jump at it and do whatever he wanted, but I actually was sort of careful um, to not get involved in anything, something that I didn't feel really good about. So anyway, we had a great, we had a great uh, meeting, um, came up with a lot of good ideas, and that was pretty much it. We just sort of sealed the deal there over breakfast, and then um, it, his general idea, the seed of his idea that had been the movie and would be the TV series too, was sort of the launching point of the book. But then the book kind of went in its own direction after that. Now how, I think a lot of people might wonder this when you co-author something with another writer, how does that process work? Like what was your involvement? Was this uh, sending drafts back and forth to each other or how does that work? Yeah, that's generally right. I've talked to a lot of different people who have co-authors and it's remarkable how different it can be. Like I know a couple guys who write books together and somebody essentially does a chapter. Um, he must be the sort of the plot man. And then like the texture man comes up and sort of redrafts that chapter while the other guy's moving on. So there's there's all sorts of ways to go about it. Our way was more just more or less just sort of the way you might imagine it would be with sort of me working and sending drafts to him and him reworking and then adding stuff and um, very sort of traditional arrangement I think. How long did it take to do the, the entire thing? Uh, not that long for the actual writing. Um, it's it's been a while now, so I'm a little fuzzy, but I wouldn't think more than six months. Now you have a filmmaking background yourself. Were you involved in the Netflix series at all? Not at all. None? In fact, uh, the book and the series, although they clearly share the same DNA, they're radically different. Uh, the series is for much younger uh, kids in the book. Okay. The book is, you know, I guess middle grade, but certainly high school. And since it's fantasy, adult as well, I suppose. The Netflix show is definitely a kid's show. Now, um, speaking of books, you have Volume 2 of The Life and Death of Zebulon Finch, that series, coming out today. Today. It's uh, October 25th, today. Um, now, this is part two, and what was your inspiration behind this? For those of you who don't know Zebulon Finch, he's like this living dead kind of zombie-ish teenager from late 19th century Chicago, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, shot or killed, I should say, and... Mm -hmm. uh, was back to life to to wander the earth um what was the inspiration behind this character well before we started recording we were talking about night of living dead and that sort of figures into sort of how this concept came about i was in college uh undergrad and i remember it vividly i was sitting at this burrito place i went to the university of iowa talking with a couple friends and for whatever reason start talking about zombies and back in the day it's hard for people who are younger than us to to realize this but Zombies were not like a topic of conversation. Yeah, yeah. There weren't TV shows about them. They weren't. There weren't really comics about them. They just were sort of off the map. They were these sort of uh, monsters of '70s cinema, really, that weren't talked about in polite conversation, really, at all. But for some reason, we were talking about zombies, and I kind of had this idea of this one zombie following him through a long period, not just you know, a year or a few months, but for, for decades. And how that would actually be a way to sort of flip the script a little bit and see the zombie movie as something, sort of a tragedy, something very sad, you know, that you could move on through life and all of the things that you knew would sort of crumble away and all the people you loved would die and you would just sort of, you know, life would become its own sort of curse. Uh, so I kind of, kind of sat on that for a couple decades. Uh, I did play with it over the years in uh, various forms, but all those attempts were really uh, ways to shrink the idea to a way I could actually handle it. Uh, it wasn't until I think you know a few books into my career that I thought maybe I had uh, the beginning of the skills needed to do it at the original scale that I had thought about it, which was this sprawling, what ended up being 1,500-page uh, epic that more or less covers 100 years of American history. And this sprawling nature, it's, it's broken up into two books. Yeah. That wasn't your initial plan, though, right? No, I, I mean, 
Yeah, I want it to be one book originally, yeah. but there are just publishing limitations on what what you can put into a book before the, the binding doesn't yeah. hold the book. <laughs> uh, did, that, you, did that affect how you... Did that affect the story at all? No, that's a good question, but it didn't... Um, I mean, there's enough book there for four books. Yeah. So I could have diced it however I wanted. Uh, there, was a, there was one clean break in the book, one good narrative break that was roughly halfway in the middle. So that's, that's pretty much all it took to decide for two volumes. Now, if you look at your, the body of your work, from Monster Variations and Rotters up through Jeb, Zebulon Finch, um, it's firmly rooted in horror and fantasy, I would say. Um, what drew you to those genres? Have you always been a horror fan? Yeah, um, I have. My earliest sort of horror memories are uh, two things, really, and they both revolve around my mom, who was a horror fan. And so she would sort of make me stay up late with her and watch Twilight Zone when I was little. And uh, so I, when I was way too young, and some of those early Twilight Zone episodes are pretty scary, mm -hmm. uh, when I was very young, I would be having this sort of relatively steady diet of horrifying images, but my mom got such a kick out of them. I was like, she just loved it. She would, you know, she wasn't there screaming and huddling on the cover. She was there, you know, vocally enjoying it. And I think I sort of connected that kind of horror anyway with, um, I don't know, something positive. Uh, I, and then my second biggest memory was Night of the Living Dead, which I first saw with my mom, and we watched almost every Halloween together, and uh, I've seen it more than any other film, as as you have. Yeah, it's interesting that we, we before we started taping, we were discussing our love of zombies, and my love of horror is from my mom as well. I, hmm. I Every Halloween, or even throughout the year, I'll get, like, a package, and there's, like, some Bella Lugosi DVD, just huh. out of the blue. Like, like I might already have it, but... Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, she was always trying yeah. to scare me, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember, I don't know if you've seen, you've probably seen it, um, Salem's Lot, the TV oh, yeah, yeah. series. There's that, you know, the scary scene in the in the movie where the kid is floating outside the window and he's scratching. Yeah. I remember one Halloween... Uh, and again, I was very young. She was saying, now, tonight when you go to sleep, if you hear someone scratching on your window, don't let them in. Like, <laughs> she was always start saying these things that were just really terrifying. Uh, but somehow I came away with them, uh, came away feeling, I don't know, somehow positive about the genre. Yeah, it, I mean, it obviously had a positive effect on your, yeah. on your career. Um, now, you write your, 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 your works, with Zebulon Finch and some of the other ones, they're, they're for the YA market, the young adult market. Um, do you set out with that particular audience in mind when you start writing, or um, no? How does that work? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I don't know that aside from Troll Hunters, the book I did with Caramel, that any of the books I've written are necessarily young adult books. They, my first book was sold as young adult, and I think that sort of just sort of set the pattern. Mm -hmm. Basically, how normal book contracts work is. Uh, your publisher will have first ref right of refusal on your next project. And it just has sort of happened that way, where I, I wrote a book, it was released as a young adult, I wrote another book, and, you know, you sort of take it to your publisher first, and they decide whether or not they want to publish it, and they, in my case, they have wanted to publish it. Uh, so my thought has always been, as soon as young adult people stop publishing my horribly inappropriate <laughs> for teenagers books um i'll just I'll, we would just go to the adult market and try to sell it there it just hasn't happened yet um and i don't care one way or the other i really don't care if a book is published as young adult or adult it doesn't affect how i write the book mm -hmm. at all to, you haven't had to rein yourself in. no 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 um yeah if, if you read if anyone out there has read my books you can pretty much guarantee yourself that i have not reined myself in uh so yeah that's that's how it breaks down I don't know. There's something obviously about young characters, though, that is appealing to me, mm -hmm. because all my books have had uh, characters that are no older than 19 at this center of them. So clearly, there's something that I'm drawn to from that age range. Because if these books all had characters who were 45 years old, they would not be published <laughs> as young adult books. So there's something I'm drawn to there. Um, <clears throat> so this is our Halloween episode, as all of you know. Um, Daniel. 
what are you reading? Are you reading or watching anything right now that you can recommend to oh, our audience worldwide? Well, every month, every I'm sorry, not every month, <laughs> every October, I watch 31 horror films in 31 days. I've been doing it for eight years now, and now I've gotten a fairly considerable army behind me who are also playing along at home uh, and hashtagging their 31 horror films 31 days along with me. So I've been watching a lot of horror films, yeah. Um, have I seen anything good? <laughs> you, you know, I saw I saw one a couple weeks ago called They Look Like People. That is a it's mm. a new either this year or last year new release, um, independent film, small sort of quiet film, but very very creepy. So that pops to my head. But a lot of times, I get on kicks. You know, various October's I'll sort of like focus on various themes. And I've been watching uh, some really kind of crappy '80s movies that. You can only find it on VHS or YouTube. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching some of those. I just watched one called Evil Speak. I've heard of that one. Yeah, it's like it's great. It's this. Uh, it's it's very much like Carrie in the sense that it's a it's a bullied boy at this military academy, and how he gets back at everyone is he hooks up his computer. I don't even know how to describe it because it doesn't make any sense. He hooks up his computer to like this demon or something I don't know it's impossible to describe because I don't know what he's doing but that's the great thing about computer movies at that era is the filmmakers had no idea what they were doing either it's a sort of computers or somehow magical (laughs) so anyway he's it's sort of the satanic movie that somehow involves computers and he resurrects this demon via his computer it's very good evil speak watch it Many thanks to Daniel Krause for sitting down with the Dewey Decimal Podcast to talk horror and much more. Please pick up The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch Volume 2 Empire Decayed and check out Troll Hunters on Netflix in December. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks for joining us as we explored the uh, otherworldly in the library world. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Join us next month in November as we get political. Well, not really, but we talk about presidential libraries. Uh, We have an interview with Ken Burns. Yes, the Ken Burns. Author Jody Cantor. She has an interesting book about presidential libraries and more. Please don't miss that. Uh, Again, as always, you can find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Um, Please, Leave us some comments. Talk to us. We want to know what you're thinking about the episodes. Give us some suggestions. Uh, And also, if you're getting the episodes from iTunes, leave a comment. Rate us. It really helps us gauge uh, how we're doing and lets people find us. So, thanks. Again, I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this has been the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Sometimes we have to say, okay, look, folks, nobody ever died at Willard Library.